Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests, those who are with us for the first time today. We are happy you are here. Thank you for giving us an hour out of your life and making us your church home for a minute. Turn with me over to the book of Exodus. We're going to continue our series on the Ten Commandments. And um, so far, we've been talking about, uh, well, the, the first five and the first three deal with our relationship with God, how we need to approach him, the things we need to do to honor him, have no other gods before him, make no graven images, do not take his name in vain. Uh, The next one, which was the Sabbath, really deals with just you. It's, It's the only commandment where God is trying to just bless you. He said, do no work on the Sabbath. We defined what that meant, but in summary, why... He was trying to give his entire people 52 vacation days a year. Why wouldn't you want that? Especially when he, he was encouraging the people to say, listen, when you rest, I'll work for you. I'll prosper you while you're sitting down, while you're recuperating. I'll work on your behalf so that you, you're able to, to reap from my labors and even make more than you would have done if you labored. <laughs> what a deal. And yet... We don't trust him enough, and so we try to figure out how can I get as much out of these seven days as possible. I'm going to work even though God said rest. Just for you. He's just trying to bless you. That's all. Just trying to bless you. And today we're going to go through six, uh, seven, and eight. So turn with me over to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15. Exodus chapter 20, verses 13 through 15. Moses is writing and he says, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal. Lord, help us as we study. Before I get into the message, I, was, I think I'm supposed to recognize a family reunion that's in the house. The Cloud family, where are you? Shout, somebody. Shout if you're part of the Cloud family. All right. Glad to have you today. We're going to talk about three things. One, murder. Two, marital unfaithfulness. And three, material misappropriation. Sometimes you've got to work hard to alliterate. You've got to find that extra M. Murder. Everybody knows murder is wrong. In fact, everybody knows the things that are in the Ten Commandments are wrong. They are so ingrained in our psyche. And it's almost as if even if they weren't said, we would know that they are wrong. Murder is is horrible. But let me me define to you the different distinctions between what it means to, to understand what God's talking about. Murder is the, the premeditated... Wanting, wanton slaying of another person, taking their life without cause. Then there is killing, then there is self-defense, and then there is manslaughter. Manslaughter is when you accidentally harm somebody to the point of death. You're out there and you're an axeman and you're going away at a tree and all of a sudden you take a back swing and the axe head flies off, hits a guy in the head over there who's chopping on another place and kills him. Is that murder? No, that's manslaughter. That, 
It's an accident, but somebody still perished. Uh, Self-defense is when somebody is assaulting you and you are in defense of your life trying to fight back and the only way to make sure that you defend your life well is to dispatch of the other person. And then killing would be that which is allowed in times of war uh, but not allowed any other time. And so it's not murder. You are defending your country and you are obeying the orders from a superior in order to do that. Murder is something completely different and God had case law that superintended over the other categories of somebody dying at somebody else's hand. And there were, there were rules around which you could judge that and sometimes penalties for it. That if somebody died by way of manslaughter, then generally speaking, you had to go to a place called a city of refuge. And these were little spots that God had all over the promised land to which people could flee. Why did they have to flee? Because under Israeli law or, or Jewish law at the time, and this was cultural, not so much with respect to the law itself in the Bible, that the survivors of the, ones, of the one person who passed had legitimate right to take you out. Even though it was not prescribed as such in the scriptures, it was culturally okay. And so the person, in order to avoid being killed himself, would run to a place called a city of refuge. And while he remained in that spot, the people who would exact vengeance on him could not. And in those spots, you had certain priests that would guard over that person's life. It would be our version of house arrest. Um, there, were, there were all kinds of regulations that proved that something was not murder. And there were rules around it. But let, let's talk about murder for a minute. It's a horrible thing. And there's no way you can amplify it enough in verbiage to describe how horrible it is. But most murders happen before they ever happen. We like to think of Jesus as the guy who, who kind of softens the Old Testament. Grace and peace. We see him as the one who carries the lamb on his shoulders, caring for sheep well. And the Old Testament is, you know, kind of that harsh God. The New Testament is the nice God. That's the way we kind of look at it. But, but if you really read the New Testament well, you understand God doesn't change. Our understanding of him changes, but he does not. And so we grow in revelation about what he meant when he said what he said back then. And Jesus begins to amplify it. And when he talks about the law in Matthew chapter 5, and this is his Sermon on the Mount, this is his tone-setting moment for how the administration that he is called to steward is supposed to work while he's on the planet. Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. I tell you this. That if a person hates his brother, he has already been, been declared guilty before the court of heaven. Wait, 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 wait. G Did you just up the command? You, you, didn't, you didn't lower, you, you raised the stand. It's not so much what somebody does outside, although that's horrible. He deals with where it starts. 90% of murders are not terrorist attacks. They aren't wanton, unbelievably horrible, demented folks who are motivated by demonic spirits attacking people with a gun in an in elementary school. That's not how 90% of them happen. 90% happen because somebody's mad at somebody. 
Somebody won't forgive somebody. Somebody has issues. And the only way they think they can resolve them is to lash out and end that person's life. Jesus gets down at the heart. Now, even the other circumstances about which I spoke, issues of terrorism or somebody who has a mind that's really twisted, motivated by demonic entities, those are issues of the heart as well. How'd you get to that state? If your heart was right, you wouldn't be motivated like that. God is trying to change man, not just his actions. It is not about behavioral modification, though behavioral modification is good until you can get to the other. Please, even if you're not right, do right. That helps us all. But God doesn't want to stop there. Behavioral modification only makes somebody more morally correct toward other human beings. Changing the heart helps them to be better so that they can do more at being better and helping other human beings. It restrains action to just do behavioral modification. Changing the heart transforms a human being to make him more productive in society. Sacrificing his own benefit for the benefit of others. Jesus said, I'm going for the heart. You think it was tough judgment in the Old Testament? Come my way. I'm even tougher. I declare you guilty before you ever did it. I know it's down on the inside of you. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. Stop now. Forgive. Forgive. Murder is horrible. And it's primarily horrible because you are made in the image of Almighty God. You're different than the rest of creation. You have inestimable worth. I was a biology major 36 years ago. I know what evolution says. I still believe Genesis 1 and 2. Yes, I do. I I, I normally take February off, and I, I just stay at home, and I study, and I rest, and I just get a new perspective in life. And this, this year, I studied creation versus evolution, read seven books, looked at it from the evolutionary side, looked at it from the creationist side, saw where the flaws were in some people's idea about what creation looked like, saw where the flaws were in evolution. And I came back to Genesis 1 and 2, and I shouted, and I said, God, you are so right. You are so right. Now, you need to read Genesis 1 and 2 properly, but you are so right, God. And the evolutionists will tell you that we all descended from this goop. This stuff that somehow got electrically or systemically charged and this chemical reaction happened and all of a sudden the elementary foundational elements, elementary foundational elements, what a redundant phrase. (laughs) Elementary chemicals formed together to somehow produce the first DNA strand, a very simple organism. And then that morphed into something else as the environmental pressures began to to shape it so that it began to, to, to... acclimate to the needs around it which came into something else and then it needed fins and then it needed legs and then it needed hair and then it needed a beak and, and, and then it needed fingers and, 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 and then it needed to, to walk upright and be bi- bipedal and, and then it needed a brain that was bigger <clears throat> and so the head began to get bigger and bigger and, and all of a sudden man came now I respect the evolutionists because they're really smart people They are brilliant, just deceived, just a little deceived. And and, and I get it. I mean, when you don't want God, you do everything you possibly can to root him out so that you have no excuse. 
And if we just came into being by accident, then to whom are we accountable? Any action is right. There is no sense of morality. There's no absolute truth. There's nothing. It's just all by accident. So whatever we come to is truth. Well, what if my truth disagrees with your truth? Who's right? Isn't there some standard by which we all must live? Isn't there some bar that we have to ascend to? And if so, who made it? You? Somebody else? And what makes their bar more right than your bar? Why can't my bar be legitimate? And I believe you are a threat to me, so I want to take your stuff. What makes me wrong? Unless somebody empirically sets a bar and says, this is wrong. I understand the philosophical arguments around it, that we have come to be different culturally and that we we don't act like apes and and we have a sense of self-awareness because we have grown into an understanding of how community benefits the individual. And so we respect the individual and we believe that we should not go ahead and, and dispatch of somebody because that ultimately hurts us and that we are taking a resource that could be a benefit to the broader community. And, and this has come as a result of us developing a mind that allows culture to be because we have a sense of self-awareness, which animals do not. When they look in the mirror, they see another animal. They don't see themselves. When we look in the mirror, we see us. They have no sense of right or wrong. They have a soul, but it's not constructed like ours because we are made in God's image. So I realize you think your dog is smart, but he's dumb. Your dog is dumb. The only reason he listens to you is because he knows the difference between pain and comfort. He has no sense of morality. He doesn't know it's wrong to poop on the carpet. No sense at all. He just knows he shouldn't do it because the last time he got a roll-up newspaper. No morality. We have a sense of morality. And I know that the evolutionists believe, well, we culturally moved into that because we felt it was better for the individual to be valued because it benefited the whole. They've got their whole rationale. Listen to me. You are valued not because culture says you're important. You are valued because you are made in God's image. Listen to me. If culture can define you, we are all in trouble. There was a culture in Germany in 1937 that defined some folks and gave some value, some none. God made you. And you have inestimable worth. There's not a value you can put on your life. And for somebody else to take it is wholly wrong. If we are just like the animals, then you better stop eating your chicken wings. What's the difference? They're just a little bit lower than us, right? They're just on a different scale of the evolutionary path. We can't eat steak. I mean, we we all ought to be vegetarians. And then there's some folk that take it even further that somehow we're doing violence to plants. (laughs) Oh, I don't have time. (laughs) When you mar a human being, you lash out at God because they are made in his image. Murder is wrong 
because people are made in his image. And Jesus is doing all he can in the book of Matthew to help people understand that it starts here, not here. That's not a political statement. It's a spiritual statement. It starts here. If we can change people's hearts, if we can get them to forgive, if we can teach them how to restrain their emotions so that they don't begin to say stupid stuff that causes something to rise in somebody else as a result of their stupid statement. And then now they retort back with another stupid statement that causes something to rise in the person who has to now retort. And now they can't resolve anything by stupid statements. Now they have to use force because their stupid statements are worthless because they're not working in that they go back and forth. So now they start throwing stuff. Fists. Whatever they need to do then to subdue the other party, they do. And I would like to say that this is relegated, meaning the, the context in which I just spoke is relegated to the world. They're church folk who don't have enough good manners to know how to argue right. You got to know... Listen, one of the greatest skills you will ever learn is how to fight right. Never with your fists, nor with any other implement, with words that are constructive rather than name-calling and destructive. You have to learn how to fight right. As soon as you begin name-calling, it's no longer about that which you have issue. It's now you just disrespected me. And I'm, I don't really care whether you had an accident in the car what you just did is bigger than that. We're going to have it out now. Whatever, in fact, most of the arguments that start, nobody remembers after an hour what, what started it because they've elevated it to another level. You have to learn how to fight right. And in 30 years, I'm being married to my wife. We celebrate 30 in December coming up. We're pretty good fighters. <laughs> we're pretty good. We're pretty good. We don't ever name call. We don't let our voices go to a different... In fact, if hear me. If I begin to... If I begin to talk like this, dear, do you understand what I'm saying? She says, stop yelling. <laughs> Whoa. You don't know what yelling is. You call that yelling. That was forceful speech. That was not yelling. That's at the level at which I am restrained to speak. And I've learned it. My house, oh, <laughs> mama knew how to communicate. And it was up here. I mean, the more we rebelled, the higher the decibels. And then it was just anything close to whoop them with. Anything close, belt, spoon, just anything close. I just got to beat them. I just, I just got to beat them. My words ain't doing no good anymore. I just got to beat them. That's how I learned life. And I married a woman who's very quiet. You have to work to hear her sometimes. Her voice is, in, is just small, and she knows. She said, my voice is so small, I wish I was a better speaker. I said, you're beautiful. What it does is it, it makes people turn up their hearing aid. They want to hear what you've got to say. And she hears things at a different level. And so we've learned to, to argue beautifully. And our arguments are few and far between. And we respect one another in it. We know how to fight well.
one of the greatest skills you'll ever learn. And it never gets to the place at which somebody's got to call the police. It happens in the church. I'm begging you. Learn skills well and forgive so that we never get to the place where somebody has to tell you, hey, don't murder that person. Secondly, marital unfaithfulness. Do not commit adultery. The biblical strict definition of adultery is intimate relations with a person of the opposite sex who is married. Specifically, a man having another man's wife. A man having another man's wife. That is the biblical definition of adultery. Now, we culturally have expanded it to include a man having another woman, whether she is married or not. I'm not against that. That's just not what the Bible says. If we talk about what fornication is, that's where fornication fits. Now, by the way, everybody say PG. I'm keeping it PG. That's what fornication is, sleeping with anybody who is of the opposite sex, who is not your spouse, whether they are married or not. Now, fornication is inclusive of adultery, but adultery is not inclusive of fornication. Next is immorality. Immorality is, are things that don't have anything to do with the... Let me say, immorality includes everything I just said and things that don't have anything to do with the opposite sex with whom you are. So homosexuality is wrong, and any other thing that has an itty is wrong. PG. PG. And then lastly, you've got impurity. Impurity includes everything above, and then what you think and what you see. Now, Jesus said this. He said, you've heard in Matthew 5, again, Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it, it said that it's unlawful to commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks upon a woman with lust has already committed adultery. Again, Jesus raising the bar. Oh, what? You mean my, my eyes? It, it's not just, you mean I have to control what I see? Really? And all the men are saying, how many times have I? No, never mind, never mind, never mind, never mind. Lord, how? Is that possible? How? Listen to me. It is possible to put a guard on your eyes so that you can maintain your purity. It is possible. Old Testament saint, Job. (laughs) Job is an amazing human being. Now, he is famous for the things through which he went. Lost his entire family, lost all of his businesses, and yet did not curse God in the process, and God gave him double of everything he had in the end. An amazing human being, considering the fact that we go through a little bit of stuff and get mad at God. He lost everything and still maintained his faithfulness in worship. Now, one thing he did do wrong is that he thought he wasn't worthy of going through this kind of stuff, thereby accusing God of being unfair. Yeah, not good. God rebuked him for like four chapters for that. <laughs> not good. But my goodness, most of us would have cursed in his face and walked away. I think, Job, you could be my pastor any day, babe. You are an amazing human being. But one thing he said in Job 30, I think 30, 32, something like that. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes to not look upon a woman with lust. 
Now, this is a man who lived someplace between Noah and Abraham. We're talking 3,000 years before Jesus appeared on the planet. And he said, I'm able to understand that even looking at someone with the wrong motivation is wrong. Wow. My point is, if an Old Testament saint who did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling can make that thing happen, what is not available to you? How much victory are you setting on the shelf? Gentlemen, you can do this thing. You can have a pure heart, not just to to talk about the issues with respect to what you see in the mall or a pretty woman walking down the street. We're talking about what you view on the computer. Just plain stop it. It's filling your eyes with images that are unreal. They are fantasy-oriented, and they can't be realized in the way that you desire. Yet your desires begin to change according to what you see, and you become dissatisfied with that that God gave you. What you need to do is not look over the fence and try to figure out where the grass is greener. You ever heard of fertilizer? (laughs) Get fertilizer at a hoax and begin to make your stuff green. Begin to sow into your spouse. Love your spouse. Well, Pastor, you don't know who I'm married to. You married to Eve. You married to Eve. That's who you married to. <laughs> Women ain't changed. They ain't changed. You married to Eve. And Eve needs encouragement. Needs, Eve needs to be told she's beautiful every day. Eve needs to be told your version of, girl, you are bone of my bone. I can't live without you. You make me what I could not be otherwise. You are amazing to me. They need to be told that on a regular basis. You sow into your own field. It'll produce for you. You just aren't a very good farmer. And you're expecting fruit. You're not sowing, you're not watering, you're not weeding, and you're expecting fruit in your marriage. What's wrong with you? Psalm 37 says, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Make sure you do that, and God will give you the desires of your heart. You want a marriage that's a dream? Cultivate faithfulness. That's all together there. God giving you the desires of your heart? comes after the fact that somebody has cultivated faithfulness in the environment which they didn't think could be productive. Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness, and God will give you the desires of your heart. Love your spouse. Now, I'm accused of being real hard on men in this church. Guilty. (laughs) I ain't apologizing either because you're the leader. You need to be called up to another level. We need some strong, integral men in our community. We need some men who have testimonies of faithfulness. Okay, ladies, don't clap too much. Your turn. You just say yes too easy. You unmarried ladies, you say yes too easy. You dress wrong sometimes. Now, I know the Bible talks about, Pastor, you, you're saying we can't, you know, First Peter 3 and earrings and makeup and hair. No, I'm not saying you can't look pretty, please. As a woman said one time, if the barn needs paint, paint it. <laughs> I ain't mad at you. Look as good as you can. But don't confuse attractiveness with bait. See, men just see it as attractive. 
You come out looking a certain way, and you know what you're trying to do. Other women say, mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. You know what she's going for right now. Now, hear me. The sad thing is you just might catch something. You might catch something, and what you catch you won't like. Because anybody who's attracted only to that probably isn't worth your time. Yet you will, you will take anything you can get because you're desperate. Well, he got a job, Pastor. <laughs> Does he love God? Is he willing to keep you chaste until he says, I do? What kind of man is he? He can't just be breathing. You want a man who's got some integrity, who really cares about you more than him and is not trying to take something from you before he should. And therefore, you need to learn how to say no. You need to learn how to respect yourself and think of yourself as being so valuable that you are worth waiting for. Every woman wants to go to the altar chaste. Not a woman that doesn't. I realize that, that that horse may have gone out of the barn a long time ago. I get it. But listen to me. God can restore purity. The physical side, that's gone. But God can restore your heart. And it can make the commitment that you make to him as if your body is fresh again. As if you're brand new. And he can allow for some degree of restructuring and restoration to happen whereby you now may not have been able to fix it back then, but you can save yourself until the right man comes along and he puts that ring on your finger, not the engagement ring. That's just just hello. That's just hello. That just means he's serious until he puts that last band on. Then you are his, and only then. And if he gets mad at you before that time and says, I can't take it anymore, good. At least now you know the fish you ought to throw back. Love yourself like that. And trust God that he's able to give you the right man. There are many reasons why ladies who work at night are in the wrong profession. PG. (laughs) Many reasons why that profession is horrible. But one of those horrible reasons is that men pay too little. It ought to cost a man his entire life to do that act. His entire life, his devotion, his heart for the rest of his days, that's what God intended for it to cost. Now, if you've given it away for free, God help you. At least the ladies who work at night are charging. God help you if you give it away for free. It ought to cost his entire life. 
Too tough. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Material misappropriation. <laughs> let's get happy for a minute. Yay! Stealing stuff is really not good. Let me tell you why. Because it reflects a couple of things. One, your lack of understanding on how the other person got what they got. The only reason somebody has something you want that you do not have is because God gave it to them. God gave it to them. And if God gave it to them, remember, he, he's the one who owns all things. He owns everything. And so, so the only reason he gives it to somebody is for them to be a steward over that thing. So when you steal it from somebody else, you're actually stealing from him, God. Secondly, it reflects how much you do not trust him to provide for you and that you've got to go and ring, wrangle, wrangle, wrangle out. I'm not using the right word there. Fix it for me in your own private head. <laughs> you have to wrestle all the stuff by your own strength and power to get what God has not yet given you. And the only reason he has not yet given you that which somebody else has that you want, only two reasons. One, you shouldn't have it yet or you shouldn't have it at all. And this is where we need to trust him. Lord, I want it. But obviously you, hadn't, you haven't put it in, in my boundaries. It's not in my purview. So I trust you. And, and you know, there are so many... Anybody lived long enough to be happy about God not answering a prayer? When you prayed it, you knew you needed it. Lord, I want that man. God, give me that job. I need that job. That's what I want. Lord, help me to, 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 to gain these resources at a certain time. And you, you knew that that was the will of God. But mercifully, he didn't give it to you. And 10 years later, you see that man, you say, Woof, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Hallelujah. You start talking in tongues. You get so happy. Our perspective is so limited. We're myopic in our prayers. We think we need something now, and then we get mad at God when he doesn't give it to us when we think we need it. But he sees the big picture. He's got a panoramic view of your life, past, present, and future. And we don't need to take anything that is not ours. Stealing is horrible. And whenever you steal, remember, you might take possession, but you never gain ownership. Ever. It might be within your governmental purview, but it's never really yours. Because God is the only one that gives. And if he didn't give it to you, it's not yours. And at some point, he's going to take it back. He's going to take it back. Now, there are penalties for stealing. In the Old Testament, depending upon where you read, in which dispensation somebody was making a rule, Proverbs says seven times. Exodus says four times. Seven times should a man repay if he steals from somebody else. So if you stole a loaf of bread, in fact, Proverbs talks about this. Though a man might steal a loaf of bread because he's hungry, the thief will still have to pay sevenfold back. Wow. Exodus just said four. But somebody upped it. My point is not so much to talk about the specifics of what restitution looks like as much as to say restitution is real. 
that if you take it, not only is it not yours, but when you repay, you got to repay more than what you got. There are penalties associated with, with, with taking something that is not yours. Stealing is wrong. My point is, please, trust him. Trust him. Although this doesn't relate to theft, it does relate to wanting getting something before you're supposed to have it. I am, I am so glad God gave us this property. I, I really am. And there are pastors. Some of you know them. Mike Mentor, who's at Reston Bible Church, a large church that's influencing the community in Reston. Or Gary Hamrick, who's over there at Cornerstone Church in Leesburg. These are my buddies. We run together. We pray together. We love each other deeply. And, and they were here for our church dedication. If you weren't here, please look at it online. It was a seminal moment in the life of our congregation. If you weren't here, you need to know who we are. That helps you understand us better. It was phenomenal and defining for us as a people. But my, my friends come to me and they say, you got the best property in all of Fairfax. It's amazing. You're on 28, dude. You are on 28. And they're like 95,000 cars that drive by. And see, literally, we, we checked it. 95,000, Fairfax County keeps these records. 95,000 cars drive by here on 28 every day. And they see our sign. And we've got the only sign all on 28. Now, Dulles Expo Center has a sign, but it's more like a, 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 a stump. <laughs> I was trying to be kind, but I couldn't find another word that quick. Stump. We have a big sign, and, and they all say, how did you get that property? They have no idea how much I did not work to get this property. But what I did work to try to get that wasn't supposed to be mine for 25 years. We were begging God, give us property, Lord. We're, we're a nomadic people. 25 years. We as a congregation met, and, and these are only the places I can remember, 33 different locations as a church. Basements of churches, high schools, junior highs, community centers, backyards of homes. Stories I can tell you that you would not believe. That should never happen to a church. And here I was now, nine years into the thing, set in a senior pastor, started in 82, became senior pastor in 91. We had about 50 people. And I said, Lord, my first quest is to get us some property. Nothing happened. Zero. And I went looking. I'd spend two to three months out of my year looking for property. Couldn't find it. And I was just saying, God, is this how I'm going to go out? He was pastor of a nomadic people. They were holy, but they were homeless. <laughs> homeless they were. Is this my epitaph? How in the world can I ever be described as a good leader unless I find my people a home? I looked in the mirror and said, you're impotent. I would cry thinking, everybody else, all my people who are friends of mine, your people, pastor friends, all my friends have property except me, and I've been here longer. God, this is horrible. I feel like a failure. You have no idea how much I let this thing define me. Until I just said... I'm done. I, I don't know what else. We even bought property. Getting ready to build. And, and then I shamelessly had to sell it because we got bigger in the process. When we bought the property and we were trying to build, we got too big for the property. And I said, sorry, church. You know, that's a bad moment. That's a bad moment when you encourage everybody to, to invest in a piece of property. And then you come back four years later and say, sorry, we got to sell it. We're too big. They look at you and do you know what you're doing? Do you know what, you, do you know what you're doing? That's me. You all have come to a much more finished pro project. 
than was here 15 years ago. And so I, I got it. This used to be a water park. If y'all been around here long, it used to be a water park. I got a circular in the mail, and uh, it, it, it said $395 for an entire summer. Membership to the water park. It, it was $16 to get in per person. I had seven kids. You do the math. <laughs> I said, this is a deal for me. Cool. So my whole family could go for three hundred and in two and a half trips, we paid for it. So I thought, this is fabulous. This is great. I'd come up here, and there was nobody here. We had 20 people. I thought, wow, that's strange for a water park in July. I come up three or four more times still. I thought, this guy can't be doing well at all. I went to one of the realtors in my church. They go ask me if he wants to sell. He said, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Brett, you're a genius. You're an absolute genius. <laughs> that's how I got this. God just gave it to me in the right time. I was impatient. I didn't have the right character. I didn't have all, but I am so happy. I didn't get that for which I prayed. And I waited 25 years, 25 years for a church not to have property. My point is this. Don't take that which God doesn't give you. Trust him. Let's go back to the front. Make sure you deal with your heart so that you don't do anything out of compulsion and Losing control that you're going to regret a lot later. And do your best to keep your eyes and your motivations right and your heart pure. Purity is that which will cover every other offense in the area of immorality. If you're pure, you won't do anything else wrong. Honor God in these commands. And your life will be spared from tragedy. Complications out of which you have a hard time getting. And knots which get very difficult to untie. I'm begging you. Obey. Let's pray. Lord, have your way, I pray, with us as a people and help us to comply with your will.